Good morning, everyone. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's quite the introduction, Steve, but if my credibility is in question, just keep in mind they gave me the long weekend and made me preach outside. So, no, uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Christopher. Uh, I am husband to Amy, father to Sybil and Ori. They're the, well, Sybil's the one that always runs up to the front. Uh, her grandmother was just singing, so that's part of the reason why. It's not like we don't have a leash on her. Well, we don't. She's not a leash kid, at least not yet, but she might be. I am a slave of Jesus Christ, and I am called to proclaim good news in his name. It's a privilege to be here with you this morning. So today, I want to talk about something called gospel imagination. Gospel imagination. Don't know that it's an actual thing. I think I made it up. Maybe I didn't. But what I mean by the phrase is it's the, the tangible way that you can actually perceive your own mind being transformed by the good news of Jesus. Tangible in the sense that you have an actual sort of conscious awareness that your view or your perspective is being changed. How's that possible, right? Normally we just sort of think what we think and don't have a whole lot of uh, awareness of the fact that we're thinking, right? I'm going to give you, I'm going to tip my hand right away. I'm going to give you the only thing that I actually want you to walk away from today with, like right at the gate, okay? So you can, you can all leave when I'm done in a couple seconds here. The operative question is this. How is this good news? Okay? How is this good news? That single question, if you get in the habit of asking yourself that time and again, I think you will find that you'll notice your perspective beginning to change. And the gospel goes from something just that you know to something that actually shifts the way that you see the world around you. So that's my hope today, is that we're going to walk away with a little bit more of a sense of gospel imagination, okay? And this, this affects every interaction that you have. Any awkward situation where you're not sure how to respond or what to say, how to behave, this question will serve you well. Sound good? Cool. So you can all leave. <laughs> no. Uh, kids, before I get too much further, I want to just sort of call all, all of you your attention forward. Little ones, if I can have your eyeballs up this way as best as you can. And little ones here is basically anyone who can't vote. How's that? Um, most of what I'm about to say is going to be really boring, okay? And you have my permission to check out and just not listen to a thing, all right? Um, later, if you listen, or not listen, if you just more or less behave yourselves, I guess, uh, I promise that at the end, we're going to have some story time, okay? And that's going to be sort of a special time for you that I hope will be beneficial for everyone. But it's one of my favorite stories from one of my favorite authors. It's called The Sneetches by Dr. Seuss, or Dr. Zoyce, I think is how it's actually pronounced, but whatever. Okay? Does it sound like a deal? So you guys just, you know, be super patient, and then later uh, I'm going to read a story for us. All right? That sounds good? Okay, so for the rest of us grown-ups, before I press too much further in, um, I want to just take a moment for us to sort of bring ourselves before God and, and sort of be ready to receive the word, so to speak. Uh, and I hope that becomes evident in a minute why I'm doing this. But... Um, if you could, just close your eyes for me. We're going to do something weird. We're, we're, we're outside today. We, I can do whatever I want, right? <laughs> this isn't church, right? Or it's a field. Close your eyes for me. If you want, you can even open your hands in sort of maybe an open posture. Perhaps set your hands on your lap. 
um, or just relax yourself so that you're not feeling tense. And as you do that, I want you to consider, you can do this at home too, I want you to consider all of the things that you're blaming yourself for right now. It's just a light Sunday morning, I promise. When you consider those things that you have guilt over, that you're ashamed of, the areas where you failed, where you think you might fail, your worries and your fears. In the name of our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, there is peace for you and forgiveness through him. Receive that today in Jesus' name. Amen. Your sins are forgiven, friends. That's the beauty of our gospel good news message. Now, I'm going to read for us from a passage in Ephesians. Now, a few weeks ago, our pastor here, Paul, uh, he said that Romans was, was uh, the Apostle Paul's magnum opus, his best and pivotal work. And I respect that, but I'm going to posit for you that perhaps Ephesians is, is at least in equal measure uh, one of Paul's greatest works. This passage is probably my favorite um, I guess, single explanation of the gospel. It's wordy. It's a little wordy, so track with me if you can. I'm reading from the English Standard Version, and this is from Ephesians chapter 2, and it's verses 13 to the end of that chapter. And uh, Paul writes this, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you're no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And that's good news. It's a beautiful, beautiful truth. What Paul is doing here is he's, he's referring to, I'll, I'll give you some historical context, okay? A little bit of background of what's going on. Paul is writing to a group of people who are divided at the moment around what it means to be Jewish versus what it means to be a Gentile. And those terms are uh, Jew referring to God's chosen people, the people of Israel, Abraham's descendants, right? It's an ethnic but also religious and cultural distinction. And then this Latin word that we use, Gentiles, which basically just means everybody else. And they're struggling to try and understand what it means to be one people with God. Now, you might know that in this period of time, uh, the temple is this really important building, not unlike what we might call the church, but specifically, think of it like a cathedral, a giant place of religious significance. And in fact, it was the one place in the whole of the world where you could go and offer your sacrifices, find atonement, you know, f make your relationship right with God, that kind of thing. 
It was the sacrificial worship center of the whole religious system. That building was segregated. So only the most uh, prestigious of the religious elite could enter the innermost chambers, and then a few others could enter sort of the outer chambers, and then only women who were Jewish could go a certain distance, and then Gentiles were the, the lowest on the totem pole. And anyone that wasn't Jewish didn't get to go anywhere but this one place called the Court of the Gentiles. And what Paul is doing here is he's using this religious imagery of a building, of a temple, where walls have been demolished and destroyed, and in its place stands only one man, one humanity through Jesus Christ himself. We don't know for sure, but allegedly there may have even been a plaque on the wall that said essentially, like, no shirt, no Jews, no service. Like, get out of here. Like, if you're Gentile, you don't get to enter. And Paul is playing with that imagery of a building being torn apart and in the the wall that was once hostile, right, a fence that said, off my grass, you instead have nothing, an open gate, a door. So you have here uh, two different groups of people that Paul is trying to address, the ins and the outs, the Jews who are the bearers of Israel's message and the outs, everybody else, right, an us and a them. And what Paul does is he explains that thanks to Jesus, the the whole of the good news, when, when we ask ourselves, how is this good news? What the good news is, is that there is no longer any hostility. Firstly, between humanity and God. God made that good, right? He found a way to restore peace between him and us, and thankfully us and him. But that peace extends beyond just us and this sort of lateral connection to some being out there, and extends this way to our neighbors, to our friends, to our family members, to anyone. Paul elsewhere in his, in his writings in Galatians, he says, in fact, there is no longer any Jew or Gentile. There's no male or female. In fact, there's no slave or free because we are all one in Christ Jesus. You get the rhetorical flourish here. Substitute any human denomination, any distinction, any aspect or facet of human experience whereby you might draw a line and say, that's them. It doesn't exist. There is no distinction that we can make whereby hostility has a right to be, thanks to what Jesus has done through his work on the cross. That hostility has been put to death. Now, that's some good news. Now, I want to have a comment here, furthermore, when we're talking about being a people of good news, having a good news imagination. um, I wasn't sure that I wanted to go here. I'm going to go here. When we talk about Israel, right? Israel was the people of of God, right? The people that bore God's name. There's a commandment that I think often gets misunderstood, and I want to explain that a little bit because I think that it helps us on this side of the covenant understand our role as Christians, okay? And the commandment is, do not take the Lord's name in vain. Have you heard that before? You've you've had that preached down your throat, maybe. Um, You know, don't, don't do it. A lot of the time, an interpretation that's very common, whether you hold this or not, is not for me to say, an interpretation is that means something like, don't swear, right? You're not supposed to say things like, uh, you know, oh my God, or say the name Jesus Christ in the context of a cuss or a swear word, right? Actually, that's not quite what it means. We know from the other Deuteronomical Levitical tradition that there's a reason to probably honor God's name, and and I'm not suggesting that we just go ahead and throw it around, okay? But that specific commandment, I'm going to break it down for you. Do not take the Lord's name in vain. Take means literally do not lift up, bury, (laughs) I always do that, lift up, carry, or bear, Think of it physically, like taking a sack onto your shoulder and bringing it with you, right? A physical posture, right? Do not lift up, carry, or bear. 
God's name. Name in the Old Testament context means something like what we say as soul. Okay, it's not quite a one-to-one, but it's not just the word that you're called. It's not just titular where you say, uh, this is your name. It's your whole revealed character, something about like, the, the fullness of your being. Right? That's what's implied by the word name in the Old Testament context. And in vain means something to the effect of uh, for your own advantage or improperly. Okay? Everyone's tracking with me so far. That was a lot of rambling. Here we're going to put it all together. A fair paraphrase of that commandment is this. Do not misrepresent the character of God for whom you are so named. I'm going to say that again. Do not misrepresent the character of God for whom you are so named. This was God's plan with Israel, was to be a shining light to the nations, right, of blessing and, and of goodness. This side of the covenant, you're called a Christian if, if you're here and, and believe, and if you're not, that's okay. You've probably met them, and we're sometimes okay. Christian means literally little Christ, okay? In English, we have this function where, I'm a, I'm a language nerd if you hadn't realized, okay? So you can just say, oh my word, more, more grammar? Yes, please. In English, we have a function where if something is cute, we add an E to it, okay? So if you have a babe, it's a small human. If you have a baby, it's a cutesy little thing, right? If you have a pup, baby dog, right? Small dog. If you have a puppy, you want a pet of puppy, right? You want a pet of puppy. In Greek, they have the same function. You don't just have a Christan, you have a Christian. It's a tiny little baby Messiah, an itty-bitty Jesus. That's what it means. I, I wish I was, like, kidding, and I'm, I'm half kidding, but that's the function. It's taking this name, Messiah, Chosen One, which was a syn- synonym with, with Jesus' own name, and applying it to this whole group of tiny little, little ducklings that walk around after him. In other words, as a Christian, as somebody, a part of this thing we call church, you're carrying God's character, his name. You're an ambassador. You're a representative. You're not just saying, oh, yeah, I believe in this thing. You represent that thing to the community in which you live. Now, in some ways, that's a bit of an admonition, (laughs) um, and that might be a little bit scary. But the beauty is that little tagline at the end and why I read that whole passage. It's because of the power of the Spirit at work in you that you are even capable of being such an ambassador. And that is a beautiful thing. So not only do you carry it, which, oh, shoot, that's responsibility. I don't like that. But it's possible in a community by the power of the Spirit. Now, when we say gospel imagination, right, let's get back to that. When we're asking ourselves that question, we're not just answering the question of, well, how is this good news? And then saying to, you know, whomever it is that we're looking to speak with, well, here's the truth, whether you like it or not. Right? That's not what I mean. It's not saying, well, what do I understand conceptually as the good news? And how do I force this person to hear it? far from it. When we say, how is this good news? We're asking the question, how do I, in this moment, represent Jesus to this person so that they understand his good news? That there is no longer any hostility, that the dividing wall has been torn down. The, the least of these, the lost sheep, so to speak, the individual person, not just some generic conception of a lost one, this particular lost one. And in that, I think you'll find a beautiful freedom. Because as you approach that question, how is this good news? You're going to be faced with awkward questions. I've had people come forward to me, young teenagers who are on our Christian leadership teams, and they've come forward and said, hey, we slept together. What do we do? And I have to approach that question. How is this? Okay, how do I represent Jesus to these people in this moment? How can I speak good news? Or uh, parent 
who comes to you and says, my kid has come out of the closet, they're living an openly gay lifestyle, and they still want to be a part of the church, I don't know what to do. Consider from their perspective, how is our community good news for that person? And as you go down those rabbit trails, I think you'll find that there is no distinction that you can make that allows for hostility. Maybe that, that person is experiencing grief, right? A lost one. And before you open your mouth and say something foolish, maybe you ask yourself, how is this good news? Maybe it's someone who's experiencing a, a miscarriage. <laughs> that happens, be it natural or medicinal. Rather than opening with condemnation, we can respond with compassion. How is this good news? To this specific hurting one, how is it good news? So there is no us in them. There is no male, female, slave, free. There is no Jew. There is no Gentile. There is no uh, liberal or conservative or NDP. There's no Republican or Democrat. Pro-life, pro-choice, doesn't matter. What matters is that we are able to represent the character of Christ for whom we are so named. So, by means of conclusion, I'm going to read a children's story. <laughs> and that story, I hope you'll find, uh, parents, grandparents, this is hopefully an exercise for you, actually. When you're trying to think of how do I represent good news to a, to a child, I don't have a theology degree, I, I don't know what to say, what if I say the wrong thing? I want to validate those fears. I think it's a nerve-wracking thing to try and represent some of this stuff sometimes. And what I'd recommend is, as, as we approach the world with that gospel imagination, asking ourselves this question, I think that we'll be surprised where we can see good news. And it doesn't always have to be from a source that just is the Bible itself. But we can see good news in places around us, in things that are maybe even familiar to our kids, right, or to our grandchildren. And so I hope that as we read this story, it becomes obvious how it connects to this idea of hostility being destroyed and the good news that's present, right? So, kids, if you'd like to, you can come forward, I guess? I don't know. It's a big green space. Or you can stay where you are. That's fine. I'm not going to make you run forward. I know Owen's like, don't make me leave my, my comfy chair, which I see as Habs, which I'm tempted to make a comment about, but there is no Leafs or Habs, okay? <laughs> We're all <laughs> one. Is that, that's the line, right? That's too far in this context. You can't, you can't say that. There's, okay. I'm going to read this story for us. It does have pictures, but I don't think anyone will really be able to see them. So uh, from one of my favorite authors, a man wise beyond his years, is the, um, the prophet, Dr. Dr. Seuss. Now the star-bellied sneeches had bellies with stars. The plain-bellied sneeches had none upon thars. Those stars weren't so big. They were really so small, you might think such a thing wouldn't matter at all. But because they had stars, all the star-bellied sneeches would brag, we're the best kind of sneech on the beaches. With their snoots in the air, they would sniff and they'd snort. We'll have nothing to do with the plain-bellied sort. And whenever they met some, when they were out walking, they'd walk right on past without even talking. When the star-bellied children went out to play ball, could a plain-bellied sneech get in the game? Not at all. You only could play if your bellies had stars, and the plain-bellied children had none upon theirs. When the star-bellied sneeches had frankfurter roasts or picnics or parties or marshmallow toasts, they never invited the plain-bellied sneeches. They left them out cold in the dark of the beaches. They kept them away, 
never let them come near. And that's how they treated them, year after year. Then one day, it seems, while the plain-bellied sneeches were moping and doping alone on the beaches, just sitting there wishing their bellies had stars, a stranger zipped up in the strangest of cars. My friends, he announced in a voice clear and keen, my name is Sylvester McMonkey McBean, and I've heard of your troubles. I've heard you're unhappy, but I can fix that. I'm the fix-it-up chappy. I've come here to help you. I have what you need. And my prices are low, and I work at great speed, and my work is 100% guaranteed. Then quickly, Sylvester McMonkey McBean put together a very peculiar machine, and he said, You want stars like a star-bellied sneech? My friends, you can have them for three dollars each. Just pay me your money and hop right aboard. So they clamored inside. Then the big machine roared, and it clonked, and it bonked, and it jerked, and it burked, and it bopped them about. But the thing really worked. When the plain-bellied sneeches popped out, they had stars. They actually did. They had stars upon thars. Then they yelled at the ones who had stars at the start. We're exactly like you. You can't tell us apart. We're all the same now, you snooty old smarties. And now we can go to your Frankfurter parties. Good grief, groaned the ones who had stars at the first. We're still the best sneeches, and they are the worst. But now, how in the world will we know? They all frowned. If which kind is what, or, or the other way round? Then up came McBean with a very sly wink. And he said, things are not quite as bad as you think. So you don't know who's who? That is perfectly true. But come with me, friends. Do you know what I'll do? I'll make you again the best sneeches on beaches, and all it will cost you is ten dollars eaches. Belly stars are no longer in style, said McBean. What you need is a trip through my star off machine. This wondrous contraption will take off your stars so you won't look like sneeches who have them on thars. And that handy machine worked very precisely, removed all the stars from their tummies quite nicely. Then with snoots in the air, they paraded about and they opened their beaks and they let out a shout, We know who is who! Now there isn't a doubt the best kind of sneeches are sneeches without! Then, of course, those with stars all got frightfully mad. To be wearing a star now was frightfully bad. Then, of course, old Sylvester McMonkey McBean invited them into his star-off machine. Then, of course, from then on, as you probably guess, things really got into a horrible mess. All the rest of that day, on those wild, screaming beaches, the fix-it-up chappy kept fixing up sneeches. Off again, on again, in again, out again, through the machines. They went round and about again, changing their stars every minute or two. They kept paying money. They kept running through until neither the plane nor the starbellies knew whether this one was that one or that one was this one or which one was what one or what one was who. Then when every last cent of their money was spent, the fix-it-up chappy packed up and he went. And he laughed as he drove in his car up the beach. And they never can learn. No, you can't teach a sneech. But McBean was quite wrong. I'm quite happy to say that the sneeches got really quite smart on that day the day they decided that sneeches are sneeches, and no kind of sneech is the best on the beaches. That day all the sneeches forgot about stars, and whether they had one or not upon theirs. <laughs> Dramatic reading of Dr. Seuss. Is that what you came here for this morning? I hope so. Alrighty, well, with that, uh, I actually am going to conclude. I'm, I'm going to offer a prayer for all of you. Uh, and then I'll invite uh, Steve and, uh, well, my mother, 
beautiful, lovely Beth McPatton McBean to come up and sing in her voice on machine. <laughs> Heavenly Father, thank you so for who you are and for all that you do, for the truth of your word and for the hope that you offer through Jesus Christ and the power of your spirit here at work in this community. Thank you for the fact that there is no uh, star or not upon ours for us, Lord, that there is no us, them, Gentile or Jew, no wall of hostility, but Lord, that you broke that down and stand in place with the cross, the power of which can quell any qualm that we might have with those around us. Teach us, Lord, to ask that question daringly, how is this good news? And give us the boldness to respond well, even if the answer surprises us. Help us, O oh God, we pray, to be your people, bear your name well, and to be a light into this community so that hope, peace, and justice might be restored around us. In your name we pray. Amen. <laughs>